Well, last week we ended, I believe, under transcendence. Is that right? Uh, talking about aseity or aseity. Does that sound about accurate? I, I hope that's right. Uh, and we looked at a couple of quotes here about God's aseity. That the self-existence of God denotes that the ground of his being is in himself. In the reference, it is sometimes said that God is his own cause, but this is objectionable language. God is the uncaused being, and in this respect differs from all other beings. From W.G.T. Shedd, his dogmatic theology. It would be really cool to have two middle names and have three initials like that. W.G.T. Shedd, I like that. Uh, We also looked at this quote from Cornelius Van Til, another epic name. God is in no sense correlative to or dependent upon anything besides his own being. So that is uh, essentially summing up the doctrine of a zeity, that there is no other being that God is dependent on to be God. He was never made by someone else. Uh, You, of course, are extremely dependent, aren't you? (laughs) You see that in almost every way, almost every day. We are very, very dependent. Well, God is absolutely separate from us in that he's not dependent or correlative to anything besides his own being. Well, now I want us to talk about eternality. So you should see that at the bottom of page three, talking about the eternality of God. God had no beginning and he has no end. He exists endlessly. He exists in one indivisible present, not conditioned by time. So... um, why do I not have the, the right word up there? For, my, for the blank on there, you could say God exists endlessly, or you could say simultaneously. Uh, I have in my note simultaneously. But either word works. God exists endlessly and simultaneously in one indivisible present. His existence is not conditioned by time whatsoever. Now that is an absolutely foreign concept to us, isn't it? To not have your existence conditioned by time. Everything we do is based on time. Uh, you look at you know, people you know, like your kids, getting older. and That shows you time, doesn't it? You can mark time uh, in every way through your life by aging and, and things changing and developing. Well, in God's being, there is no aging. There is no developing. He exists outside and over time. And here are some references you can jot down that we'll look at, starting with Deuteronomy. 32, Deuteronomy 32, verses 39 to 41. Isaiah 43:10. Isaiah 48:12. Isaiah 57:15. Isaiah is pretty important when it comes to these qualities of God. <clears throat> Starting in chapter 40, Isaiah really uh, describes the nature of God while, while he's comparing or rather contrasting the one true God with idols. And then there's also 1 Timothy 1.17. So Deuteronomy 32, Isaiah 43, 48, 57, and 1 Timothy 1.17. So let's look at these. Deuteronomy 32, verses 39 to 41. I'll turn there, and would someone get uh, these passages in Isaiah, maybe two or three volunteers, Isaiah 43.10, Rex? Rex, will you also get 48.12 after that? Would someone get Isaiah 57.15? Who can get Isaiah 57.15 for us? Dex? And then uh, I'll get 1 Timothy 1.17 after that. So, again, listen for God's eternality. The fact that God's existence is not conditioned by time in any sense. This is Deuteronomy 32, starting at verse 39. It's God speaking, saying... 
See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. Deuteronomy 32, verses 39 to 41. Um, He is the one, the only God. There is no God besides him. He puts to death and he gives life. No one can deliver from his hand. I'm wondering if that was maybe the wrong verse reference that I put down on there, because uh, it doesn't speak to eternality specifically. So I'll have to go back to my notes and see maybe what happened there. But let's look at Isaiah 43.10 and 48.12. Rex? You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am he before me, there was no God formed, and there will be none Okay. Before me there is no God formed and there will be none after me. So that, that means that uh, he's always existed as God, right? If, if God had a beginning point in time, if God was with, with, I guess I should back up, if God was within time, he would have a beginning point, just like you. But God says there was no God before him and there will be no God after him, which means his divine nature extends both directions eternally. Eternally past, eternally future. In Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I call. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. The first and the last. This is familiar language, isn't it? Uh, Think of Revelation. Jesus says he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. All of these phrases denote that God exists comprehensively throughout time. Okay? He is the first and the last. He, he, that doesn't mean that he was the first one to be created and then he's the last one who will die. That's not what that means. But he's saying that comprehensively he exists through all of time. And then um, Isaiah 57, 15, Dex. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell upon a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. Okay, so God exists in a high and holy place. His existence is not creaturely. It's not bound by time. It's not in the created world. He's not limited to the created world, rather, um, where he would be limited in ways that, that we are. But God has an existence outside and over all of creation. And that includes time, doesn't it? God exists outside and over time. He says that he's high and exalted, and he lives forever. So when you see a phrase like that, God lives forever, can you then say that he, is, he has a creaturely relationship with time like we do? Well, no, you can't. You would have to do some really interesting origami to the text to get it to say that God has a creaturely relationship with time. And then in 1 Timothy 1.17, it says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So God is eternal. There it is stated plainly. He is the king who is eternal. And eternal, uh, eternality means nothing if we're saying that God is within time. 
There are some people out there who claim the name of Christ who try to say that God is within time. They are called open theists, and they believe that God has a creaturely relationship with time. But uh, you really have to do great damage to these words like forever and eternal to come up with that view of God. Ignatius, way early in the, in the church, said, Honor thou God indeed as the author and Lord of all things, for there is no one superior to God or even like him among all the beings that exist. Look for him that is above the times, him who has no times. I like that phrase. He's above the times and he has no times. From Augustine, a little bit later on in church history, 4th century, Thy present day does not give way to tomorrow, nor indeed does it take the place of yesterday. Thy present day is eternity. God's present day is eternity. Again, really hard for us to wrap our minds around, isn't it? Absolutely different existence than what we have. God exists eternally outside and over time. So since God is transcendent and eternal, he must also be immaterial. And you have that on your notes, this section on immateriality. And this is really important. The, the first um, debate I was ever a part of, it was live here in our church building with a Latter-day Saint on the topic, is God immaterial? Meaning, does he have a, a body like we do or is he spirit? That was the debate. I actually just took part in another debate last night. <laughs> I debated a, a man on uh, the topic of preterism. Anybody know what preterism is, perchance? Preterism is pretty interesting. Uh, he, preterism teaches, and it's not a huge group, but the, it's a group, it's a vocal group within Christendom. Preterism teaches that all Bible prophecy has already been fulfilled and that we are currently in the new heaven and new earth. Exactly. There is there is no hope deferred. You have all hope realized right now. So, yeah, your responses were good. Thank you for responding that way and, and not saying, oh yeah, that sounds right. No, it's not right. <clears throat> well, um, how did I get there? Oh yeah, because my first debate was on the topic of immateriality. And so... Um, 1 Kings 8.27 is a good place to start on this. 1 Kings 8.27. Perhaps you haven't been to 1 Kings for a while. Uh, but this is in the context of uh, Solomon and the temple. And when, when you get there, someone read 1 Kings 8.27 for us. This verse reveals that God has a unique relationship with space as he does with time. The universe cannot contain him. And this is really critical. Right? God has, as creator, God has a unique creator relationship with space and time. Now, is he within space and time? Yes, but by his own volition. He, he enters into space and time to make covenant with man, to be with us, to dwell with us, to be present with us, to comfort us, to convict us. He has to enter space and time in that way. In fact, I mean, you can think of uh, the most prominent event where God entered space and time, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, did he have to be within space and time? No. But he did it out of his own volition and out of his love. And we'll talk about that more next week with his other attributes. But he does not have to be within space and time. In fact, in his nature, he is totally outside of space and time. 
And he created space and time when he created all things. And 1 Kings 8.27 is one of those verses that, that reveals that. So who's got it? 1 Kings 8.27. Go ahead. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I built? Right. So now this verse is a major problem for those who say that God has a body of flesh and bone. Because it says, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him. Well, if God has a body of flesh and bone, this room could contain him. But here, the proclamation is that even the highest heaven, we're talking about the entire universe, cannot contain God. This lends itself to the idea that, of course, God is spirit. And that's what Jesus explicitly says in John 4.24. He makes the plain statement, God is spirit. It's a clear description of God's non-corporeal existence. That's a, always been a hard word for me to say, like rural or juror. Those are hard words. Cor corporeal. Uh, God has a, an existence without a body. How about that? Uh, in John 4, 24, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. He's having that exchange with her. And he tells her in verse 24 that God is spirit. And those who desire to worship him are to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, he's not saying that God is um, spirit body. That's kind of an argument you'll get around here sometimes. Well, it's just saying that God is made of spirit matter. And spirit matter is still matter. It's just different than our matter. That is not what Jesus is saying. That was not in their minds at all at that point. Uh, there is no exegetical basis for that. As you look at the original language, there's no reason to think God, that Jesus was saying that. He was stating plainly that God is spirit. So God is immaterial, uh, and, and that word, you have to be careful with that word, because sometimes that means not important when you're having a debate with somebody, and they say, well, that's immaterial. Well, that's not what we're talking about. God is the most material in that sense, in that he's the most important. But he's immaterial in his being, in that you can't grab hold of him. You can't contain him. You can't restrain him. Okay? You, you can't do those things to God, because he is, by nature, spirit. Yes, Lizzie? So I was talking with Melissa a while ago, and um, she said that we will see God, but if Jesus is God, will we see more than Jesus? And then I asked her, well, what will happen to the Holy Spirit in heaven? Okay, so you're wanting to know when we get to heaven, what will we see and who will we experience? I guess, like... We'll get there eventually in this class. I don't know. I don't think that relates, uh, relates directly with immateriality, but we'll get there. Those are good questions, but not today. Creatures are not called to worship a being possessing the same kind of existence as us. Aren't you thankful for that? We are not worshiping someone who has the same kind of existence with space and time like us. Rather, we worship the one who transcends. And last week we looked at that. That was one of the headings here on our notes. God has transcendence. God's real Full presence in multiple places at once precludes confinement to a body in any sense. Okay? So if you're looking at what immateriality is, this is a good summary statement of what it means that God is immaterial. He has a full and real presence in multiple places at once. He cannot be contained. And that leads into omnipresence that we'll talk about next. But... Uh, it's a great conversation to have with people, and this happened in my debate with uh, Kwaku, the young Latter-day Saint, when we uh, talked about God's immateriality. I was asking him about the Holy Spirit, and 
And Scripture says that the Spirit, you can't escape Him. Where can I go from your Spirit? Psalm 139. We'll look at that. Where can I go from your Spirit? And basically, the argument that has to be made is, well, it's kind of like, and this is the exact example he used, when your mom says, I'm always with you. Well, she doesn't mean that she's always literally with you, but she's with you in spirit, or she's with you um, emotionally, or she's just a phone call away. I don't think that's what the scriptures are teaching. When the scripture says, where can I hide from you? <laughs> that's a little, little bit more than just I'm with you emotionally. Where can I run from your spirit? If I go to the depths of the grave, you're there. If I ascend to the highest heavens, you're there. This is talking about God's real full presence. And that's a great hope that we have as Christians. Not that God just says flippantly, yeah, I'm with you. But that he literally means he is with us. God's real presence in multiple places at once is known as his omnipresence. He is immense, always available, and no one can hide from him. So that's that passage. Let's all turn there. Psalm 139, where, again, this is just explicitly stated that uh, God is in multiple places at once with a full, actual, real presence. This isn't metaphor. There's no reason to look at it as metaphor. And if it is metaphor, you'd have to wonder, what, what does it even mean? <laughs> what do we take away from it? Uh, but in Psalm 139... Verses 7 to 12, we see God's real presence in multiple places at once. Who can get that for us? Psalm 139, 7 to 12. I got it. Thanks. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your head shall leave me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall, shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. All right. This is God's real presence in every place. I make reference to Jeremiah 23 here. The verses are verses 23 and 24. So Jeremiah 23 and 24 of chapter 23. I'll read that for you. God says, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? So again, there's explicit language with him seeing and with him filling all things. Okay, So to say... That, well, what he really meant was, uh, you know, we can actually hide from him. When he says that you can't hide from me, well, we can, because he's not actually there. No, that's not what that means. It means that he sees you everywhere you go. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down with love, right? God is looking. He's seeing. We believe that he's actually fully, totally present. Origin. So again, going back to the early church, he says, we do not ask the question, how will we go to God? As though we thought that God existed in some place. God is of too excellent a nature for any place. Amen to that. He holds all things in his power and he himself is not confined by anything, whatever. Great statement on God's omnipresence. I'll pause there and see if there are any questions on God's 
immateriality, eternality, omnipresence. Okay, we're good. I don't have a page four, so I'm going to give you this one that has my blanks already filled in. There you go. <laughs> don't have another one. All right, um, omnipotence. Who can tell me what omnipotence means? All-powerful, there you go. All-powerful. He is all-potent, all-powerful. God possesses all power physically and spiritually with no exceptions. Man, it feels good to say that kind of stuff, doesn't it? If you were LDS or if you were of another religion, you would have to like put all these like asterisks after that and say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. But when you just hold to what Scripture teaches, you can say God possesses all power physically and spiritually with no exceptions. That just feels nice to say. His power is only confined by his own will. It is always exercised purposely toward his own glory. These are really foundational. I know that for a lot of you these seem basic, but these are so foundational. If you grasp these doctrines of who God is, a lot of other stuff down the road starts to make more sense. Okay? If you can grasp that God's power is only confined by himself, by his own will, and that he's doing all things for his own glory. A lot of doctrines that we're going to talk about down the road will just make sense. They'll be much more acceptable to you if you start there. What happens when people start with the doctrine that God is like us in some way, when you start talking to them about God's sovereignty, or you start talking to them about how God is going to bring all things to an end at the end of the world, and it's all going to be for his own glory, they start thinking, well, that's not fair. That's not right. It's because they didn't start here. When you start here, other things make sense. Okay? And here are some passages for you to write down. I love Job 42, too. Job 42, verse 2. Deut- or, uh, Daniel, chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. Steve, you should get that one for us. Daniel, chapter 4. You know, yeah. you know that one. Nahum. When's the last time you turned to Nahum? Chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And then Colossians, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So Job, Daniel, Nahum, and Colossians, where we're going to go to look at God's omnipotence. I'll let you jot those down and go ahead and grab one of those passages and consider if you're willing to to read for the class. That would be helpful. But uh, Job 42.2 is where we're going to start. And we can actually start in verse 1. Job 42, verses 1 and 2. Someone want to read that for us? Job 42, 1 and 2. I'll read it. (laughs) Okay. Job 42, verse 1. Job answered the Lord and said, here it is, here's our phrase for omnipotence. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's awesome. Job's confession is, I know you can do all things, God, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's awesome. Daniel, chapter 4, 34 and 35. You got that, Steve? Daniel 4, 34 and 35. You want to grab that one for us? Someone got Nahum 1, 5 and 6? Go ahead, Lizzie. Nahum 1, 5 and 6. Um, the mountains 
quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, and the world and all the world. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. All right. So, mountains quaking before God. Does that mean he's got a little power or all power? <laughs> you better believe that means he's got all power. This is, a, again, a totally foreign existence to us. This is a non-creaturely existence. For the earth to be upheaved by his presence. God is all-powerful. Daniel 4, 34 and 35. You got that, Steve? I thought you were going there. Oh, I thought you read it. No, no, she was in Nahum. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you had all of Daniel 4 memorized. Well, I got one. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. What do you got, Rex? Colossians. Okay, go ahead and read Colossians, and then we'll come back to Steve. All right, Colossians 1, 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Wow. All rulers and powers and authorities were created by him and for him. So is there any governing power, any governing authority outside and over God? No. He has all power. And the powers that exist come from him, the all-powerful one. And so you look at this language, it's comprehensive language. There's just no way that any power exists outside of God. And then Daniel 4, 34 and 35. Right, we got it this time, Steve? Yeah, Daniel 4, 34 and 35. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth, including Steve George, <laughs> of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, Steve George. And Steve George cannot stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Mm. That's a, a, I didn't know they had that in there. <laughs> that's right, yeah. When it says all inhabitants, that includes Steve George, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, so uh, Steve, give us a little context. What, how did Nebuchadnezzar get to that point? What was going on in Nebuchadnezzar's life? Well, he had a, uh, a dream, and the dream was that uh, he was going to be reduced down to like a dumb animal. And for seven years, he just ate grass like an ox, and his fingernails grew long like a bird, and his hair grew long like an eagle's feathers. And because God humbled him, because King Nebuchadnezzar got braggadocious about building Babylon. Yeah, there you go. And so God wanted to teach him a lesson. And what's really cool is at the end here, uh, at, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, See, he got, he got restored with reasoning. Everything came back to him. And then he praised God for it. Yeah. And I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol, extol and honor the king of heaven 
all whose works are truth and his ways judgment. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Yes. So basically, when a creature says, Ah, oh, look at all my power. I've created all these things. I'm so powerful. Then God says, let me show you who really is omnipotent, right? And so Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God's power. Now, that leads to a question when when you get into, uh, I don't know, debates, or even when you're just explaining this to a child. Can God do anything? Can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? I'm sure you've heard that before. Can God create something so big that he's unable to lift it? Because it seems like a, a gotcha question. Because you got to err one way or the other here. you either got to say, no, God can't create it, or yes, he can, but no, he can't lift it. And so what do you do? How do you escape that? John Calvin, God is deemed omnipotent because governing heaven and earth by his providence, he so overrules all things that nothing happens without his counsel. Charles Hodge says, we can do very little. God can do whatever he wills. We, beyond very narrow limits, must use means to accomplish our ends. With God, means are unnecessary. He wills, and it is done. So when you think about, can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? What's the answer here? It's like, well, no, because if he creates it, he can lift it, right? If he wills for it to happen, it happens. And to say that um, he would somehow be caught in a trap is to say that he has to abide by the same creaturely laws that we are under. But God doesn't exist by those laws. He can speak the world into existence. So can he create whatever he wills and do whatever he wills? Well, yes, he can. And so that that whole argument is basically trying to assume that God would endure the same limitations as us and that uh, God would will to limit himself in a way that shows that he is not strong enough to lift a rock, which is just a a weird line of reasoning. If God can do it, if God, which he can do all things, if God wills it, it will be done. Yes, Lizzie. I was just going to repeat again. The mountains quake and the hills come. Yeah. So no rock is going to show that God is not strong, right? (laughs) The mountains bow down to him, okay? So anyway... um, Omniscience, we'll move on to, unless we have any other thoughts or questions on omnipotence. Makes sense that God has all strength, all power? Okay, very good. What is omniscience? God has all? Knowledge. Good, yeah. Science, Latin word for knowledge. God is all-knowing. He knows all and all alternatives to reality comprehensively. That's pretty cool. He knows all things, and he knows all alternatives to reality comprehensively. And we'll talk about that in a moment. The Lord alone possesses total certainty about anything. And that's really important when we get into the realm of uh, having discussions with unbelieving people, what certainty is. But the Lord alone possesses total certainty about anything. He's all-knowing, and he knows all alternatives to reality. Here are your verses, Job 37, 14 to 16. So we'll be back in Job. Matthew 6, 8 and Matthew eleven twenty one, 21. Romans eleven thirty three 33 and 1 John 3, 20. Okay. Job 37, I'll grab Job and um, you guys grab those New Testament passages and 
Be brave. Someone read those for the class. It's good for you to do that. God uses that to, to mature you. It's a good thing. Job 37 is where I'll begin, verses 14 through 16. Again, we're listening to God's omniscience, that he knows all things. Listen to this, O Job, stand and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God establishes them and makes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect in knowledge? So you have in Job 37 here, Job's friend Elihu. What do we know about Job's friends, by the way? Were they always right? No. Were they always wrong? No. And so here's one of those times where they were getting something right. Okay? They're reminding Job that he doesn't know all things. And they say, this friend Elihu says, look, consider the wonders of God. And he ultimately asks in verse 16, do you know about the wonders of one perfect in knowledge? Do you know how God did all these things? He is the one who is perfect in knowledge. And so in his question, we get a statement about God's nature, that God is perfect in knowledge. Matthew 6, 8, who's got that? Just the one verse? Go ahead, Sebastian. Don't be, don't be like that, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. All right. So talking about prayer, and you've got all these hypocrites out there who say, I'm really religious, look at me pray. I pray out in public, and I'm so religious. And Jesus says, don't be like those people. And here's something to consider when you pray. God knows what you need before you pray it. Now that's pretty amazing. And how is that possible? Well, God knows all things. That's the only way that that's possible. Now, in uh, Matthew 11, we're going to get to this alternatives aspect. So Matthew 11, 21. Who's got that one? Matthew 11, 21. Rex, go ahead. Got it. Will you, Corson? Will you, Bethesda? For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. All right. Now, this is pretty wild when you think about it. He's talking about two cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida. And he says that if the miracles that they got to see were performed in these other cities, those cities would have repented. Now, those miracles weren't performed there, so those cities didn't repent. But Jesus is here saying that if that would have happened, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. So that's an alternative to reality, and he knows about that too. He knows comprehensively what would happen if certain things were changed. You guys know about the butterfly effect stuff? Uh, you know, if you chose to take the stairs instead of the elevator, how that changes the whole day, yada, yada, yada. Well, God knows all alternatives to reality. So you think God has big knowledge, goes even bigger. Because how many alternatives are there to reality? Endless, right? And are we here to say that, well, God doesn't know those things because they didn't actually happen. No, he knows them. And here's some evidence of that. He knows absolutely everything of what would happen at any time. Now, you can go down a weird road with that and say that, um, therefore, you know, God knows all the alternatives, but he's not sure which path people are going to take. And so uh, he's just trying to manipulate people to get them to take the path that he wants them to take. That's a, a kind of an unfair summary of what's called Molinism. It's a, uh, try, it tries to be a solution to the Calvinism, Arminianism issue. Uh, God knows absolutely what's going to happen uh, in reality. 
But he also knows what would have happened if he would have sovereignly ordained something else. He knows all the alternatives to the reality that we're living in, which is pretty wild. And then Romans 11.33. Who's got that one? Romans 11.33. One of my favorite verses. Okay, go ahead. Unsearchable, God's judgments are, and his ways are unfathomable. If that's not speaking to omniscience, I don't know how else Paul could have said it. Okay? His ways are, are way above our ways, and he knows all things. 1 John 3.20, who's got that one? 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, Dex. Whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. All right. God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Again, if, if John was um, you know, not trying to say that God knows all things, he would have used other words. But here he says quite plainly, God knows all things. And uh, that, of course, is the doctrine of omniscience. God knows not some, not most, not 99.9%, but all things. God knows all things. John Frame. His knowledge is just as extensive as his lordship. I like that one. How, how far does God's lordship extend? Yeah. Every little thing that exists, the tiniest little particle that exists, or the biggest thing you can imagine, his, he's lord of all. His knowledge extends as far as his lordship does. Steve, you have a thought or a question? Yeah, Colossians uh, 2, 2 and 3. It's yes. the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's it. Again, another one of those times where it's not most, it's not it's all. almost all, it's all. Everything. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jacob Arminius said, He knows all things substantial and accidental. Of every kind. The actions and passions, the modes and circumstances of all things, external words and deeds, internal thought, deliberations, counsels, and determinations, and the entities of reason, whether complex or simple. <laughs> Another way of saying he knows all things, right? God knows all things. That covers everything. God knows all things. God is not bound by time, therefore he is able to know the future perfectly and comprehensively. And this is one aspect of God's foreknowledge. Okay, when, when we see foreknowledge in the Bible, uh, sometimes it's clearly talking about uh, you know, a relationship that God had with, with those beforehand. So in Romans 8.28, it says that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And so it's talking about a, um, a, an intimate knowledge of people Beforehand, That's what foreknowledge means in that case. God had an intimate knowledge of certain individuals beforehand, and he predestined those individuals. That's yeah, Romans 8, 28 through 30. But at other times, God's foreknowledge is clearly talking about just his knowledge of things that are to come. You read the book of Revelation, for example, and there's a lot of detail about what is to come. And God knew all those things were going to come before they happened. And the book of Daniel, you read about... These kingdoms uh, that are described by the, the statue, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's dream with the statue, it was made of different materials representing different kingdoms. The vision of the four beasts, you had the lion and the bear and the uh, leopard. 
And, and then you had this uh, beast that Daniel couldn't even describe. But they're describing kingdoms that were to come. The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. Well, how is it that Daniel was able to write about those kingdoms before they came about into power? It's because God was the one inspiring the prophecy, and God knows all things. He knows all things that are to come. Look at the uh, adjectives here. Perfectly and comprehensively. Or I guess those are adverbs in that case. Perfectly and comprehensively. Okay. A.W. Tozer, because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He's never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor does he seek information or ask questions. That's a good way of putting that, isn't it? God knows all things. And when you contrast it with our lives, you really continually emphasize that distinction between creature and creator. And I can't overemphasize how foundational this is to our religion. If you blur that line in any way, you're going to end up somewhere other than biblical Christianity. Because the Bible over and over and over again presents God as other. There's a line between creature and creator. God knows all things because God is omnipresent, meaning he has no spatial or temporal limitations. He doesn't guess what the future holds because the future is not future to him. Isn't that cool? In one sense, you could say, uh, truly, God already exists in the future. He's not waiting to find out what's going to happen like we are. And that is a great comfort for us. If God was waiting around to see what would happen, and what was written in the Bible is what we hope is going to happen. Well, that's not real hope. That's wishful thinking. But the Bible gives us certain hope. Okay, that's, that's another distinction to make between other religions. God doesn't give us wishful thinking hope. He gives us certain hope. Because God has all certainty and he knows all things. Yes, Lizzie. So, when we die, will we already, will revelation have already happened? Because if God has already prophet, like prophesied, prophesied it, that means it's already happened in God's eyes. And so that means he lives past that. So does that mean that we, when we die, we will live in the future? <laughs> <laughs> Not 100% sure if I'm tracking with you. Um, we, okay, but, but no, I think, I think this might be the, the solution. We don't exist outside of time ever. So we have to wait for revelation, even though yeah. God had already lived through it? Well, when we say that God has already lived through it, it plays itself out within his creation, within time. But God himself is not bound by that time. Okay, So it's not like God right now is in the new heaven and new earth and in the Garden of Eden, like, he, like, like that that's happening. Okay, I don't think that's how we should think of it. Um, and that he's also with Abraham Lincoln and he's with our you know, 57th president of the United States all at the same time. I don't think that's the way of, of looking at it. God exists outside and over time, but that which takes place within time are real events. Okay? And so the future is not future to God. He knows exactly how it's going to go down. And he sees the beginning from the end. He is the first and the last. Okay? But to, I think we, we start to err by 
putting him in those situations and then saying that we go to the future or something whenever we die. I don't think that's how that works. We, we still remain in time. Even in the new heaven and new earth, we will still be limited by time. But God will always be outside of time. Okay. And, we, and we, we're not going to be able to spell all that out and, and like di- diagram it or something and say, this is perfectly how it works. Because another aspect of God being different than us is that there are things that he knows and understands that we will never know or understand. I mean, the Trinity is another great example. We'll be talking about the Trinity in the next few weeks. We can say some things. God has revealed this about himself, and, and these are clear in Scripture. But to ultimately go into, this is exactly how it works, mm-hmm. we can't do that. So that's the, that's the struggle. No, I always thought about it. Yeah, well, good. Good to be thinking. All right, immutability. Immutability is where we'll finish today. Does anybody know what this word means? Unchangeable. Good, good. God has an unchangeable nature. He never changes in his being, perfections, purposes, or promises. This is another one of those very hope-giving doctrines. Yes? Okay. So, you know, like, how people always think about God in the Old Testament as me. Yeah. Really, like, uh-huh. you know, and then now he's like love and peace and all this. Yeah. And so, like, those are the people that haven't read Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I remember I was listening and they were talking about the time that the guy that was like he like t- put leaned against the ark of the covenant and then got killed him and then Uzzah. David yeah and David was upset with God because he was like that was a little bit like too uncalled for um, and so like how do we think about God in this way now like like very strict like oh my gosh like you know don't do this or don't do that like how do we how do we, um... he, is, he is immutable in his holiness. So to tie it into this part of the lesson, uh, God doesn't change in his holiness. He, the God whose holiness was seen through immediate judgments in the law is also seen in the New Testament. You think of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit and God struck them down. Yeah. It's the same thing. When God says, don't touch the ark, and Uzzah saw that the ark was about to fall, that's what it was, he wasn't leaning against it, it was about to fall, and he wanted to keep it from hitting the ground, he was assuming that he was holier than the ground. He was assuming that God's law had an exception clause for that situation. He was assuming all sorts of things, and he transgressed the holiness of God. Well, the holiness of God remains. The Corinthians, some of them died because of the way they mishandled the communion together and observing the Lord's Supper. Um, And even today, we are disciplined by the Lord because of his holiness. And so the holiness is is seen in the person and work of Christ. We are spared from the law. We're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. And so that is different. And that's the second idea. The way he interacts with man changes. But in his essence, he is still just as holy as he was. And so um, we we don't have the command to build an ark and don't touch an ark. We don't have that command. Yet we do have commands from God still in the new covenant. And when we break those commands, God disciplines us. There's still sin, and God disciplines sin out of his holiness. Okay? So uh, here's some passages we can look at. Numbers 23, Psalm 102, Malachi 3.6, James 1.17, and Hebrews 13.8. Several passages there for you to consider. God's unchanging nature. Numbers 23, 19. 
This is a very relevant verse in Utah Valley. It starts by saying, God is not a man. But what that actually means is that God is a man, right? You'll hear that argument sometimes. That is just so wild. It says plainly, God is not a man that he should lie, nor is he a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? So here the author, Moses, is saying, um, well, ultimately this is from uh, Balaam, but uh, this is recorded here through Moses. God is not a man, therefore what he says he will do, and what he speaks he will make it good. He doesn't change like we do. How many people have you dealt with who said they will do something and then they don't do it? A lot. Maybe you live with one, even if you live by yourself, right? (laughs) People who say they'll do something and they don't do it. Well, God is not that way. He is absolutely certain. He is sure. He doesn't change. If he makes a promise, he will keep his promise. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Sebastian. In the beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your tears will never end. All right. So here, I hope you can see how all these doctrines are tied together. It says in verse 27 about God, You are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So his years not coming to an end, that's his eternality, right? He, he exists forever. And yet it's also tied into this idea of immutability. You are the same. So God is the exact same with us today as he was back here with David and the authors of the Psalms. He remains the same. The earth wears out like your shoes or, or your, your pants. God doesn't wear out. He remains absolutely the same throughout all eternity. Malachi 3.6. Malachi 3.6. Evelyn, go ahead. All right. Why did God not consume the sons of Jacob? Well, it's because he doesn't change from his promises, okay? his purposes and his promises. He had told Israel certain things. He had given them certain promises that he would make them a nation, that he would keep them. He would recognize them as a nation as long as the sun and moon and stars are doing their thing. He's going to pay attention to his inheritance, Israel. And because he hasn't changed his mind, They remain. Isn't that amazing? And even today, why does Israel still exist? When you look at all the ways that Israel has suffered and people have tried to put out Israel, why do they still exist? Because God doesn't change. God remains the same. He is faithful to his promises and he's immutable in his purposes. James 1.17. Who's got that? James 1.17. Go ahead, Rex. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. There is no varying with God. Now, most of us, the people who interact with us, don't know what they're going to get from day to day. We might be grumpy. We might be happy. We might be this. We might be that. We might be having a good hair day or bad hair day, right? We have all kinds of variants. But with God, there is no variation. 
There's no shifting shadow because of changing. He is steady in all of his ways. Hebrews 13.8, great memory verse. Joanna, go ahead. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen to that. And again, that's about as simple, plain, and comprehensive as you can get. He is the same all the time. He doesn't change, and that's a great blessing. J.I. Packer, from his book, Knowing God, says, God exists forever and is always the same. He does not grow older. His life does not wax or wane. He does not gain new powers nor lose those that he once had. He does not mature or develop. He does not get stronger or weaker or wiser as time goes by. Agree? Yeah, I got two and a half yes. Good. <clears throat> but what about passages like Genesis 6 and Jonah 3? Now, if you've, again, been in conversations with people or heard people teach about uh, these things, you'll know where they're going with this. In Genesis 6, it says, God was sad that he made man on the earth. God repented in the King James, it says. God repented that he made man on the earth. And this leads to the flood because mankind had gotten so, so bad, so wicked that God was sorry he had made man. And then that led to the worldwide flood. In Jonah uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 10, he's dealing with Nineveh here. And in uh, Jonah's message to Nineveh is that 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Well, then Nineveh repented and they did not get overthrown. This was the message God had given Jonah is that they would be overthrown, but then they weren't. So did God change? What happened? So these can be somewhat difficult uh, uh, passages to wrestle with uh, at first glance. But our initial understanding of passages like Genesis 6-6 is that we are being told of God's attitude toward people at a point in time, just like Genesis 1-31. So at the beginning in, in Genesis, when God's creating all things, what does it say over and over and over again? God saw that it was good. Was God surprised that it was good? No, of course not. He knew what he was doing. He knew that he was making good things. And so when God says, oh, that's really good, it's not like, I can't believe how good that is. That's, that's what we, we would do, right? I've done a couple like woodworking projects when we were finishing our basement, and there were a couple times, not many, but a couple where it's like, I can't believe how good that turned out. Uh, I saw that it was very good. Well, God isn't learning that it's good at that point in time. That wasn't surprising to him. Instead, that's recorded for us. God is, is sharing that with us as a statement of the quality of creation. He's saying it is good. So when we get to Genesis 6, and he says it's not good, and we see God's response, this emotional response to what is going on in the world, this wicked, evil sin that's taking place throughout the face of the earth, God isn't surprised that that happened. God, God didn't create all things and say, oh, I can't believe how good that is. I really hope no one messes it up. That's not what's going on in the Genesis narrative. But God is giving us a statement of the quality of his creation, both in chapter 1 and in chapter 6, where he's not learning or finding out something in either chapter, but he's giving us a statement of what the quality is of the creation at that time. Because man fell and because sin spread and death through sin and because people became lawless and evil in every way, God, of course, was grieved. You know, you can grieve God with your sin, right? So God was grieved. And it wasn't that he was saying, if I could just go back and not create, I, I would. I am just so upset 
like we would probably say. Like, oh, I wish I didn't even start this thing. But that's not, that's not what God is saying. God is grieved. He's saying that he's grieved, and that's telling us something about the quality of creation. The language is not strong enough here or elsewhere in Scripture to suggest that God would go back and change it all if he could. And that comes with all of that too. People who say that, see, God doesn't know the future. If he could, he could go back and change it all. And you see how this is just totally limiting the person and work uh, of, the God, of God. Is that, well, he's just, he's, he's limited like we are. He's discovering things like we are. And just like we can't go back and change it, God can't go back and change it. So the best he could do is just flood the whole earth and hope that, you know, when he hit the reset button, it went better the second time. That's not what Genesis is telling us. I don't believe that was Moses' theology. <laughs> Moses, who, uh, of course, knew the words of Balaam, that God doesn't change. That's not what, what Moses is teaching, okay? And in, um, let's see, about Jonah. Yeah, I've got a quote here about Jonah. Uh, God's attitude toward the Ninevites had not changed. So, again, just to refresh. Jonah goes out and says, 40 days, Nineveh is going to be blown up. They repent. And they didn't get blown up. So what's the deal? God's attitude toward the Ninevites had not changed, but they had changed. And because they had changed from sin unto righteousness, God's intended dealings with them as sinners must of necessity change. While, of course, God's character had in no way changed with respect to these people, although his dealings with them had. Okay? And we experience that as Christians. We are children of wrath. We are under the condemnation of God. We are hell-bound in our natural state. And yet... When we get saved, God's attitude, what's the deal with God's attitude? Are we still children of wrath that are hellbound? Well, no, we're not. But there's a change that has taken place, and God's dealings with us have changed, haven't they? And so we're no longer children of wrath, but we're children of light. We're children of God himself. And it's not saying that God had no idea if we would get saved or not. That's not the point of any of this. But it's showing us the quality has changed. Again, just like with Genesis. The Ninevites were sinful, they were wicked people, and because they repented, God's dealings with them of necessity change. In Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah goes down and sees the potter working with the clay, and God says if there's a nation that he intends to build up just like that clay, and yet they do evil, he will, he will refashion it, he'll tear them down. But if there's a nation that God says, I'm going to tear that down, and then they show themselves to be righteous, he will relent of the disaster that he said he would bring upon them. And so God's dealings with people change if they change. That's what we see in the biblical narrative. Okay, Lizzie, what was your thought or question there? Wait, can you repeat your last sentence again? Uh, I can't. No, I don't remember what I just said. Uh, God's dealings with people change if they change, something like that? Yeah. Um, so you're Which saying, we would expect. So you're saying that between, with Genesis, that God was in Satisfied with his quality of work, so we were not up to the most quality in Genesis 6. Like, God didn't make us with quality in Genesis 6. Well, God wasn't making anybody in Genesis 6. No, but like, he, but you said like he wasn't, I guess, happy with the quality. Well, yeah, it wasn't very good anymore, right? That's the contrast between chapter 1 and chapter 6. Chapter 1, God says it's very good. Chapter 6, he says the opposite of that. And that has nothing to do with God's creative power or, or God's action. It has everything to do with man's willful rebellion. And so because man had changed, starting with Adam and Eve, because man had changed, God's dealing with man then changed. 